hut. We, we understand that story of that crow that wanted to get the water out of that large bottlenecked container, couldn't get to it, drops the pebbles in until the water rises up. We understand. You know, there's a lesson there. Cleverness, the idea of trying and trying. We understand morals like that. But the grasshopper that kept on fooling around and the, the ants who are working so hard. And all of a sudden the winter comes and the grasshopper almost starves without the help of the ants providing for him because he never took plans and made plans. We understand. There's morals to him. That Those stories had lessons that in a humorous way, in a fun way, in a childish way that captivated our attention. They were teaching morals. We come to the Word of God And we know the Word of God is much more than Aesop's fables. We know that the Word of God is coming from the mouth of God. We understand that what he's teaching us is for all cultures, all times. We understand that the moral lessons in his stories will make all the difference for not just in this life, but for eternity and for our destiny. Therefore, we understand that the Word of God, filled with his stories is so much bigger and better than any of those good moral books that we pick up and share with our kids. And yet when we come to the Word of God, sometimes we get lost in the story and we don't catch the morals. Or sometimes we just get so busy, we just move on without pausing and reflecting. We are in Second Kings chapter 1. We're coming to a story that many of us have probably glossed over as we've done our read the Bible through in a year. But we haven't paused and really reflected on it. And for me, it's been just an interesting week to just think and say, okay, here's a story, a historical story, a story that tells us some events that happened. But the author wrote them not just to give a historical lesson, but the author wrote them to help us to learn a moral. I think the morals stand out when we say, okay, what does this story illustrate for us in how God relates to his creation, to his people? What do we learn about God? These stories that God records are not just about people interacting with people. They're God interacting with his creation. The the Bible is not just, okay, let's learn how to live with one another. The Bible is God's love letter to know how to respond to him, how to relate to him. So let's, from that perspective, say, what does this teach us about God in 2 Kings chapter 1? It's towards the latter part of the life of Elijah. And when Elijah is winding down his ministry, he is done dealing with King Ahab and Jezebel. They are off the scene. Their son, Ahaziah, has come to rule. He won't rule very long. He's a wicked man. You look at the last couple of verses of chapter of the previous book, 1 Kings, and as it winds down, and you'll see that it describes him as one of the w- most wicked people, following in the ways of his mom and dad. Rege- though he's Jewish, he's rejected a lot of the Jewish faith, and he's turned to Baal worship. And we read about him now when he's on his throne, and follow along as I read this section, then we'll, we'll process the passage. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria. He was sick. He sent messengers and said unto them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the prophet, the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, that's Ahaziah, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God in Akron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, you shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up. You shall die. And Elijah departed when the messengers turned back unto him after he gave the message. 
they went back to King Ahaziah, verse 5, and he said unto them, Why are you now turned back? It's, it's too quick. You couldn't have made the trip. They said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, and he said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you inquire of the God of Baals above the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up. You shall surely die. And Ahaziah said unto his messengers, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? They answered the king, He was a hairy man, girt about with a girdle of leather about his loins. He said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent unto Elijah the Tishbite a captain of fifty with his fifty. And the captain went up to Elijah, and behold, he sat on top of a hill. And the captain spake unto Elijah, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of the fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again also, Ahaziah sent unto Elijah another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto Elijah, O man of God, thus hath the king ordered, come down quickly. Elijah answered, said unto those fifty soldiers, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Ahaziah sent again a captain of the third group of fifty. And the third captain of the fifty went up, came and fell on his knees before Elijah, and begged him and said, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burnt up the previous two captains and their fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight." The angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. And Elijah said to King Ahaziah, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down off that bed on which you are gone up. You shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. Woo. Now you don't want to read that right before they go to bed, okay, to the kids. That's a tough passage. What do we learn about it? Let me, let me just draw several conclusions that are very obvious from the text. God is serious about the things he prohibits. When God says don't, he means it. Now in the story, just to, we read it, and I think it makes sense, Ahaziah is up on his roof, he's the new king, and he's following Baal, he's not following worship, the worship of God. And he has some major problems start occurring in his life. There's two of them in this text. The major problem is some of the truth, some of the land that he inherited, the Moabites, they're starting to rebel. This is going to be a problem. The next chapter is going to talk about some of his warfare with him. But they are trying to get him off the throne. And then, when he's up on top of his palace, con contemplating what to do, he leans against the window with lattice work there, or on the sides of the building. They had some lattice work. We really don't know, but see, the thought is he probably leaned up against the side and he tumbled the couple floors down and hit the ground, was paralyzed, injured to a real serious degree that he thinks he's going to die. He's having a bad day. This is a terrible time for him. 
And what he does is he's now thinking, okay, what am I going to do? I've got, I've got political problems. I've got physical problems. You know, life and death situations from enemies, rebels, and from his own, his broken health. And so what he wants to do is he wants to find out, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. So he sends messengers to an oracle place in Ekron that he wants to know, am I going to survive this? Now he sends them to Beelzebub. That is a term that is used for Satan in the New Testament. He's sending them to Ekron, not to our Jewish religious center, but a Philistine city where they have their pagan religious system and they worship a deity by the name of Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, who Jesus uses as a term to describe Satan. So instead of turning to Jehovah God to find out what's going on, he's turning to some soothsayers, some spiritualists who are in a temple that is dedicated to, in essence, Satan worship. God is highly offended by this. That he is going to a pagan deity. He's Jewish. He knows better. I know that his parents were corrupt, but his dad also had, a, had understood some things about Jehovah worship. They knew. They had to know that according to the book of Deuteronomy, you don't go and inquire of a pagan deity. Remember the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have... No other God before me. Well, all of a sudden, Ahaziah has not only another God before Jehovah, but he's going and he's doing this soothsaying. He's trying to find out about the future. God has told the Jewish people, you shall not uh, let these type of people in the land. You shall not learn what they do. You shall not participate in these different practices that we would call occultic practices. There's a whole list here in the passage. That he talks about, hey, whatever you do, don't get involved with their worship because they do some child worship. Don't do it. He talks about how don't get involved with divination. Divination is that idea of, okay, we're trying to find out what is in the mind of the spirit world. We want to know what a deity is thinking. Don't you dare do that. Don't you go and consult in that regard. Don't go to a sorcerer. Somebody who casts spells. Somebody who is you know, saying, okay, I'm going to put a curse. You can hire them to do a curse on somebody else. You don't go to somebody who's an observer of times. Somebody who's going by the astrological chart. The horoscope people. The idea, don't get involved with that. The signs in nature. Just stay away from that type of superstition God had ordered his people. Don't get involved with witchcraft. You know, stay away from that, from all those things. In fact, another term that he uses in the, in the passage is translated in, other, in the language of Greek, the idea of pharmacy. Dealing with pharmaceuticals, drugs, the enchanter. Somebody who gets involved with drugs to change somebody's thinking. To give them this high that they would think was by a spirit indwelling them. God's passage, in that passage, God went on to say, stay away from those charmers. Stay away from those consulter with familiar spirits. Those who would channel, the mediums, the people who would, who would get involved with any type of this spirit world. You stay away from them. You don't contact the dead people. He forbade this in the Old Testament. He made it clear multiple times, don't you do it. You know, and yet people thought it was a game. Just like people think it's a game today. You know, especially you know, when we think about this season of the year, when people think, oh, witchcraft is just innocuous, it's innocent, there's really nothing to it. Well, if there's nothing to it, then why do they declare to be witches? If there's nothing to the horoscope, then how come they make so much money on it and people consult it all the time? 
If there's nothing to some things like the Ouija board, do you know that when the guys first manufactured this board, they went to the United States government and asked for tax-exempt status on the Ouija board? Because it was a religious device? The manufacturers thought that way. They said, this is a way for amateur mediumship, therefore it should be tax-deductible. It's not innocent. It is dealing with that spirit world that is alive and well and really dangerous to deal with. God said in the passage, in Deuteronomy, he said, For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And But for you, he says, you, know, you cannot, I will not allow you to be involved with this. So here we have, years later, King Ahaziah, who is supposed to be setting the pattern for the people, he is going and he's consulting in this wicked idolatry center, tell me what my future is. Didn't go to God, didn't go to God's prophet, who he knew was in the territory, when his men described the prophet from just his appearance, he knows Elijah, he knows all about Elijah, but didn't go to him. Instead, he goes to this occultic stuff. And God says, Elijah, I want you to go and intercept his messengers. We read this story. Elijah talks to him and says, hey, this, this is wrong. He's going to die because he went and tried to consult with the mediums, trying to do the safe soothsaying. The bottom line is this. When God said don't, he meant it. He meant if you Jewish people get involved with the occult, you're going to have problems. I don't care if you're the king. I don't care what your, what your crises is. You think that it's okay because you've got life and death matters. No, it's not. When I said, thou shalt not, I meant it. And it's going to cost you your life, Ahaziah. You have disobeyed me. You have gone too far. Hey, by the way, there are other passages that warn us where God has said don't for you and I living in this time period. You, we've got passages that say, hey, wait a minute, better obey parents and respect parents that it may be well with you and you live long. You understand what God is, is implying there. Failure to be obedient and respectful could cost you years off your life. Do you realize that God has said in 1 Corinthians 11, you don't dare do communion. We're doing communion this evening. You don't dare do it in an unworthy fashion or I will discipline for those who mock my son, who are not serious about it. And he says, that's why some of you Corinthians are sick. And some have died. When I say don't, God says, I'm serious about these things. You may not be serious, but I am. For instance, God says, okay, husbands, if you ignore your wives... If you are, we'll talk about this this evening, how you're supposed to treat them. And if you don't treat them, according to this text, he says, I'm not answering your prayers. Don't you dare treat your wife in this fashion, or I'm not answering your prayers. That's serious stuff from God's point of view. We can read in Scripture how God has said, okay, you, you mark this down. Don't mock me. Don't resist me. You shake your fist at me, you're going to reap what you sow. He says very clearly to the Corinthians, don't you get involved with illicit sex. The people who do, they not only sin against God, but they sin against their own body. Implication, there's going to happen some things to you. You're going to reap what you sow in the flesh, physically. He says to people, hey, you don't dare grieve, the, uh, you don't dare resist the Holy Spirit. That's an unpardonable sin. God is serious when God says don't. He means it. 
You and I need to just step up and say, okay, what's a moral out of this story? As harsh as this account sounds, it is demonstrating that our God is serious about his commands. When he tells us something, we better pay heed to what he says. There's another moral that comes out of this story. Another moral that says this, and this is an important moral. I think it'll be more important for you to see once we kind of set the setting, but let me state it. It was so important that they realized, and we do too, come Tuesday, this is important for us come in light of Tuesday's elections. God is stronger than any principality, any political power. He is stronger than those who claim to be politically in control. That's what happened in this story. Ahaziah is thinking he is in control. He's the king. Okay, I grant you this. In Old Testament, if the king said, I wanted to take somebody's life, they could take it. They took His dad took Naboth's life in an illegal, unjust way. They could manipulate politics. We understand that. We talked about that just two weeks ago with Naboth and the vineyard. So it could happen. These guys were life and death characters. They, they ruled and they were control. It was a different society back then. But these political leaders, man, they thought they had power. Well, this king, with all of his power, he recognized who Elijah was when the messengers came back. Remember, we already talked about this. We read it. Okay? He knows it's Elijah the prophet. He recognized him right away and he sends soldiers after him. And the soldiers are to go and to arrest him. Now remember, his parents... Had, had threatened Elijah before. His mom had threatened Elijah when, she, when he opposed her and her worship. But she only sent a messenger with a note that said, you're going to die. Ahaziah is far more aggressive. He sends soldiers. They're going to arrest Elijah. And so he is out against Elijah, thinking he is, he's in charge. He sends 50, 50 to 1, okay? Not just once, but three times. So Elijah is outnumbered. He is going to be the one who is going to be one against 50. And God supersedes everything. The fire comes down from heaven, destroys those troops, and wipes them out. Why? Because God is more powerful than the king's troops. God is more powerful than this king. Now this was an important message. Understand why I say this. If you were reading first, uh, Second Kings for the very first time, the first copy of Second Kings comes out. You were probably Jewish. You were probably living in the land of Babylon. See, when Second Kings is written, it's written years after the story had happened. It's written several generations after Elijah. Probably written by Jeremiah. And he is writing down the history of what happened. And he's writing these stories, and at the time that he's writing them, the Jews have been invaded. Others like Babylon have come in and wiped out the Jewish people. There's no Jerusalem left anymore. All the people have, most all of them have been taken into captivity. A lot of the people who are for the very first time who are reading Second Kings are sitting in Babylon by the rivers, weeping and wailing because they long to go back to Jerusalem, which isn't Jerusalem. It's gone. It's been destroyed. We want our homeland again. Will we ever see that beautiful city again? Will we ever see, will it ever be rebuilt? And they can't go back. 
They are under the thumb of those Babylonian rulers. They can't get up and walk away. They are in exile. They are prisoners. And so now they are under the control of a political entity that is opposed to them and their worship. And they read in 2 Kings how God is more powerful than political entities that oppose God. That's encouragement for those people. That was a blessing for those people. The writer wants the readers, the Jewish people, to understand that God is more powerful than all these kingdoms that are opposed to you. All these kings that are opposed to worship of God. God is is able to do what he wants to do. I don't care about the political numbers. Our God is more powerful than the politicians. Now, does God allow politics at times to, and, and the evil of society, and they're not necessarily the same thing, but they go hand in hand often. Does he allow them to do stupid stuff, evil things at times? True, he does. True, some things go. But our God is more powerful than anybody in Washington, D.C. Our God is the one we rely in because he is greater than the Senate. He is greater than the White House. He is greater than all the different governorships. Our God is stronger than all the political entities. We need to remember that so we keep our trust in God and not in the politicians. Okay, let me give you a third lesson. God is stringent with the proud. He is strict, stringent. This idea of stringent is the word has the idea that he will... He will punish those who do wrong, who don't obey, who don't follow what he gives. God does that in this text. Now, it's a very harsh text. It's a very, very upfront way of God dealing with it. Now, here, set the scene. Elijah warns them. Ahaziah recognizes it's Elijah that is threatening. He knows Elijah is a man of God. He knows him from his parents' experience. He knows about Elijah, what happened at Mount Carmel. He knows what happened to his dad at the, after he went in and took Naboth's vineyard. Ahaziah knows this man. He recognizes him from a simple description. He's a hairy man clothed with a leather garment. He, that's Elijah. And then he tells his soldiers to go. Look at the text. What do his soldiers call Elijah when they come to him? Thou what? Thou man of God. They know. They know that he represents Jehovah God. They know that this is a fella. And they address him that way. They know what he stands for. Yet the king, in his pompous pride and arrogance, thinks, I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to control you. You stood up for God. I don't care. I'm in charge. Not you and not the God that you represent. That's the text. That's the attitude. That is what's happening here. The soldiers, they come and what do they say to Elijah? The king said, come down. The king said, come down quickly. And so the soldiers are thinking the king's the authority. The king is higher than the prophet who represents God. The king is in control, not Jehovah God over the land of Israel. There's, an, there's a real arrogance that takes place here. Just an apparent act of pride. And God's response to them, that they, when, they, when they don't 
don't re, when, they, when they are arrogant and proud and they are not listening to him, God's response is he sends fire from heaven. Now you might say, oh man, that's just so harsh. That is so, you know, so strong, excuse me, strong of God to do. Let me, not to bore you, but let me help put it in perspective. There's, a, there's commentaries. If, if you're going to buy some books to study the Bible, this is one of those that you should have in your family library. It is just one of the most excellent single volumes of the Old Testament. It's a Bible knowledge commentary. They wrote in here on this text, listen closely. To many readers, this story seems like an unnecessarily cruel demonstration of God's power. However, the issues at stake justified the severe action. Ahaziah has shown complete contempt for Elijah and the God he represents by sending a band of soldiers to arrest the prophet like an outlaw and drag him before the throne. Perhaps Elijah's position... It's stated he's on top of the hill. Should have reminded the captain of Elijah's victory over the prophets when he was up on Mount Carmel and of the great God-given power displayed there. Either the captain did not make this connection or he decided to disregard it. He acknowledges that Elijah was the man of God, but he orders him to come down to him in Ahaziah's name. Elijah's repetition of the fact that he is indeed a man of God shows that this was an important issue. God's reputation is at stake. Was Ahaziah in charge, able to command God's, God and his servants to obey him, the king? Or was God in charge, able to command the king and his servants to obey God? By sending fire from heaven to consume the soldiers of the king, God was reminding Ahaziah that he was Israel's ruler and that king should submit to God's divine sovereignty. In a play on similar-sounding Hebrew words, Elijah said that because he was a hish, man of God, hesh, fire, would consume them. Ahaziah's disregard for this tra tragedy, uh, uh, totally disregarded the first tragedy, and tried again to force Elijah to submit to him. This time the captain ordered the prophet, come down at once. Again, Elijah reminds the captain, undoubtedly for the benefit of those looking on who would report the incident, as well as for the officer, that he was indeed God's man. The fire of judgment fell again, proving that the first miracle was not an accident, but was the hand of God at work in judgment. Still, Ahaziah hardened his heart and he sends a third group. You understand what, he's, what the author is pointing out? This is like Pharaoh who has hardened his heart. God was serious because these guys weren't budging. He had warned them. He had told them. They knew that pride was a problem. They knew that a haughty spirit would go before the fall, but they are not about to humble themselves. They have determined a course. We are in charge. We aren't humbling before God. God and God's man, they're going to humble before us. Fire. Fire comes down and destroys, destroys them. They had warnings. They had been given warnings in the word of God. They had been given warnings through the prophet Elijah in the past. They had seen fire come down from heaven and consume the altar. Ahaziah knew that his mom and dad died because they had disregarded God before. And now he does the same thing. And he doesn't, doesn't let up. By sending three groups, three troops, 
he's evidencing there is no inkling at all of repentance in his heart, in his mind. He is just so filled with anti-God activities. So God lets him reap what he has sown. Do you realize that there's another time of judgment that will be with fire? It's future to us. It's a time where God is going to take all who in pride resist God and his word. He is going to take those individuals and he is going to put them in what's called the lake of fire forever and ever. Does it sound harsh? Sure it does. That's why we warn you. That's why we talk about it. Because the God of grace and love, who is also a God of holiness and justice, he says, I don't want you to be in that lake of fire. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he tells us about what's happening. That one day there's going to be a judgment. Those who refuse to listen to his word, those who insist on doing their own thing, those who say, I can get to heaven on my own. I am good enough. I don't have to follow the word of God. I'll do what I want. And I will tell God when I get to heaven that I am deserving to go in there because I'm so good. That's a pride that God will resist. In fact, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said, what's going to happen is I will say to many in those days, depart from me, workers of iniquity. The word iniquity in that text has the idea of you who are doing your own thing. You who are lawless ones. You who say, I get to choose, not God. I'm in charge, not God. I'll do what I want, not what God wants. That I am the peak of creation, I am not subject to the creator. He says, those individuals, will, I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I don't know you closely. I don't have a relationship with you. I don't want you to end up in hell. I'm warning you about the hell. I sent my son to tell you about this hell. I, I gave my life. My son died so that you don't have to go to hell. He gave his, his, entire, his entire sacrifice on the cross. And then his resurrection was all so that you and I would not end up in this hell. But if we say, I don't need you. I'm good enough. I don't have to listen to you. That pride would cost us an eternity in this lake of fire. But Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He that believeth on me shall have everlasting life. He that shall call upon my name shall be... God wants to give mercy. God wants to extend it to you. In fact, this text shows me that God is sensitive to the penitent. God is sensitive to those who humble themselves. How do I know that? The story tells us about the captains. And it highlights that there is the first two captains, arrogant, proud. But the third captain approaches the man of God with great humility, great respect. He supplicates, I pray thee, Elijah. He's not coming. He's not looking and saying, hey, you, you need to come down. Come out. You need to do what the king says. Come down quickly. Instead, he's approaching it with humility. He's approaching the prophet, and he begs, and he says, please, spare our lives. 
we don't deserve you sparing our lives. We know you have the power to condemn. You have the power to bring fire from heaven. But we are your servants. You are not ours. We are your servants. He makes it very clear. We are your servants. He asks that he would be spared and his men would be spared. There's a humble attitude. There's a penitence. There's a, there's a humility in this man as he's approaching God's representative. And God immediately responds. Look at the text. It says in the, pa- in the passage, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah. The angel of the Lord, the Christophany, Christ in the Old Testament, immediately says, go with this man. No, no condemnation. Why? The man is coming humbly before God, asking for mercy of God's representative, and God says, give it to him. No fire, but instead, you go with this man. Now we have, we have passage after passage that talks about how God responds to the brokenhearted. When we come with humility, when we come with, without our pride, how God will bestow grace upon us. God will bestow mercy upon us. When we come like the David of the Old Testament, who had sinned, who had violated God's word, but when he comes and says, God, have mercy on me. God, forgive me. And with, with humility, forsaking that pride of saying it wasn't that bad. I don't have to repent. I'm the king. Instead, he brokenheartedly says, God, have mercy upon me, and God extends the mercy. In the New Testament, we are reminded that we should boldly come before the throne of grace. Why? We need his mercy. We need his grace. We can't get to heaven without him. Oh, there's a story that comes about, you know, King Richard III. How when he was in his military campaigns, one night he went out. And as he went out, he found one of the soldiers, one of the sentries, they were sound asleep. The story goes that he grabbed his dagger and he pierced the man through the heart. And he left the note there attached with the knife that was still in the man's heart. I found him sleeping. I left him asleep for all eternity. You wouldn't want to fall asleep on his watch. He's tough. He's harsh. That is not the God we are talking about this morning. The God we're talking about this morning He will be merciful if there's humility. When the thief on the cross is arguing with the other thief and they're mocking Jesus at first, the one finally comes to a point and says to his his colleague on the other side, he says, hey, we deserve to be here, but not this man. This man's innocent. Turns to the Lord Jesus and said, please have mercy on me. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. And because of his humility... His admission that he was wrong, that he had done wrong, that he was a sinner, undeserving of God's grace, but he begged for it, he asked for it, today you will be with me in the kingdom. That's what we call being born again. That's what we call is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Stop the pride, stop the reliance upon yourself. Your baptism is not that good. Our church is not that good that we can get anybody to heaven. The the preaching here isn't that good that guarantees that because I do it or you listen to it, we're getting to heaven. We're getting to heaven by God's mercy. We get to heaven because we humble ourselves before him and say we're not good enough. We need a savior. That's what you need. You resist that in your pride 
God is stringent with the proud. You come with humility. God is sensitive to the penitent. God makes it very clear that he will save us by his grace if we repent. If we stop relying upon ourselves. If we call upon him, he will extend salvation to us as a gift. Something we don't deserve. And if we call upon him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the God we worship this morning. A God who is stringent to the proud, who is sensitive to the penitent. Let's think of our last thought. He is supportive of his people. He is supportive of his people. Those who are committed to him, he's committed to them. Now, you know, there, what I'm talking about is coming to a point where you say, hey, I want Jesus to, to I want to follow him. There's a story that comes out of, I think, legend. But it's a story that comes about how Abraham Lincoln, when he was doing one of those times where going on the riverboat all the way down to New Orleans, he came across a slave market. That we know is historically accurate. That he did see slaves being auctioned off. And it, he found it reprehensible. It was an abomination to him. But there's a story that goes along with it that he was so moved that it said that he saw this one woman who was being auctioned off and he was taken by her demeanor, by her, her situation, that he determined, I'm going to bid on this woman. I'm going to bid on her. I'm going to free her from her slavery. So he bid, 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 bid until finally the auctioneer pointed to him and said, sold. The woman came over to him and he had the chains taken off of her, and he said, you're free. She was shocked. Free? Eyes free? Ma'am, you are free. Eyes free to go anywhere I want? Ma'am, you are free. She, in that broken English, she said, I can say what I want? You're free. I can go to any home I want? You're free. She kept asking him questions, and he kept saying, you're free, you're free, you're free. You can do what you want. And her response was, then I want to stay with you. When Christ frees us, the response should be one of gratitude that says, I want to stay with him. I want to serve him to the best of my abilities. Because he's been so gracious in forgiving my sin and giving me an eternal hope. In this passage, you have one who has dedicated his life to the Lord that way. You have Elijah, who is so committed. He's widely known throughout the area, even by his enemies, that he's a man of God. Now that's a reputation to have. That even your enemies, even your critics say, you're a man of God, you're a woman of God, you're a teenager of God. He so is so focused on serving the Lord that when God says, I want you to go and confront the king, the king... And tell the king he's doing wrong, it says, Elijah departed. When he is told to go with those soldiers who are going to arrest him and take him back to the king, he does what the angel of the Lord told him. He's committed. He's obedient to the Lord. God's response to him, in this text, you look at it, very supportive. Twice it says the angel of the Lord is speaking to him. He has a communion with God Almighty. He has a fellowship with God Almighty. He has a one-on-one -on -one conversation with God Almighty on two occasions in this story. He knows the mind of God because he's close to God. He enjoys God's clear direction. You go here, you go there. You go down, 
You stay up on this spot. God is giving him just what he needs at this moment, even when there's threats around him. In fact, when he is told to go down with the soldiers, go back to the king, we don't get a lot of detail, but we know he stands before the king. And he is given the boldness to be able to speak on behalf of the Lord to give the message he's supposed to give. And we know that even though he has an encounter with King Ahaziah, who is threatening his life, he survives. That the Lord is supportive of him. God is gracious to those who are committed. God is supportive of the, to those who are dedicated to him. Now this is what the original audience, I remind you, they're in captivity. They needed to hear this lesson. They needed to know that even though they were in the minority, God was still backing them up. They needed to know that even though they were under the hand of all these wicked rulers, the Nebuchadnezzars and all those others, that God was still going to care for them. God wasn't going to let them get wiped out. They were under persecution in some of these time periods. You remember the story that we have about how, how they're attacked under the, under the story of Ezra? God protected them. They needed to know this, that God was supportive of those who were committed. They needed to know that they need to do what's right, even in that land where evil has, has been the dominant rule. I wonder, I wonder as these individuals read this story, I wonder how it impacted Daniel and his three friends and what courage it gave them when they had to speak up against the atrocities that were being put upon them when they had to say no to the foods that were forbidden, when they had to say no to bowing down to an idol, I wonder if stories like this one didn't gird them up and strengthen them to realize that God is supportive of his people. No, I'm not going to pray to an idol. I'm still going to pray to the Lord God even if it costs me going into a lion's den. God is supportive of his people. Great lesson. Wonderful morals out of this passage. The same message that Jesus said is so important, I want to relay to those in the New Testament. That he says, I want you to go out, I want you to speak up. This isn't going to be popular, but I want you to teach all nations. I want you to tell them about baptism. And it won't be a popular message. In fact, he should have told it and added to us, to it, could have said it's not going to be popular amongst Christians. That they'll even oppose it. But I want you to teach them all things. And here's what I want you to remember. When you get up and preach, when you go out and witness, when you give out that tract, I want you to remember that, Lo, I am with you always. No matter where you're at, even unto the ends of the earth, that includes Ono, Myerstown, Fredericksburg. That includes even Lebanon and Hershey. God is with us. God will help us to do what's right. He said, just remember that. He's supportive, and this is a lesson we need. Oh, man, you try to live for the Lord, some of you. And all of a sudden, because you want to live for the Lord, you're getting pressures at work. You're getting challenged. You're getting threatened at school. All of a sudden, you are trying to live for the Lord, and you don't know if there's cancer. You don't know what this next trial is going to be. You don't even know if you're going to have a job in the next couple of weeks. But I'm trying to live for you. I'm supportive, God says. You're an individual that you've lost family members. Some of you have lost your spouse. Those lonely nights 
The only thing that, that you dread now is what happened last night, that the clock is going to make daylight disappear even quicker. And supper is going to have no sunlight. And the loneliness is going to feel more alone than what it did last week. God is supportive of his people. If you're an individual who the temptations and the trials, the difficulties, the onslaught of continuously trying to, to get you to do wrong just wears you down. Or maybe you're one of those individuals that you just say, I'm tired. I am just so tired. I want to go to be in heaven. I want to get out of here. The arthritis, the politics, the weather, I'm ready for a change. God is supportive of his people. God is supportive. I know you may think that, oh man, how am I going to do it? God is supportive of his people. The messages in this book, there's a lot. Moral lessons that are really good you can get elsewhere, but in this text, these moral lessons will keep you, will help you into eternity. They are so, so important. Now, which one are you going to take and say, okay, that's what I need to live by this week? A warning? God is serious about his prohibitions. If you are doing something that he said, don't you do, then you need to stop. Then that's the moral lesson you need to apply. If you're here this morning and you say, I am so distraught over what's happening in politics, then remember, God's in control. God is in control. He can handle and bring about what he wants to bring about. If you're an individual this morning and you are here and you have yet to humble yourself before the Lord to say, have mercy upon me, a sinner, then this is the day of salvation. If you are an individual who has yet to repent before God Almighty, then this is the time to do it because God is sensitive to the penitent. If you're an individual who the daily grind is wearing you down, that when you come in here and you want to sing, your heart isn't in it because you're just wore down, then you remember God is supportive of his people. Which one? Which ones did God have for you today?